Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Yesterday, the Securities and Exchange Commission rejected a request to list a Bitcoin ETF run by the Winklevoss brothers. They were citing concerns about the reliability of trading and volume data for the cryptocurrency. Hester Peirce was the only SEC commissioner to dissent from that ruler ruling, saying that she would have allowed the Bitcoin ETF to list. And she joins us now. Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with, why did you disagree with your colleagues on this issue? Sure. Um, thanks for having me on. I, I disagreed because it was really a technical disagreement. I think that the the way this was presented to us is an exchange presented to us um, this this a, a rule change which would allow them to uh, trade this particular product and um, the standards by which we review that should be whether or not the exchange can manage trading in that product. And instead, I think we looked to the underlying Bitcoin market and we, um, we looked at things in that market that we, we didn't like and we said we're not going to let the product trade, uh, which to me doesn't seem like the right approach at all. Commissioner Purse, I was reading your dissent and I found it really interesting. The implication seemed to be that a Bitcoin ETF may help actually bring more transparency to the market. Was I reading that correctly? Right. I think that in this case, it wasn't an ETF specifically, but an exchange-traded product, which would would allow institutions to play a bigger role in the Bitcoin market, which I think would, would be good for the market and I think would be good for retail investors as well. Just can you offer your uh, definition of what is a cryptocurrency and what is behind the potential value in a cryptocurrency? Well, I think there are many different cryptocurrencies, so I think it's hard to to provide one definition for all cryptocurrencies. Um, you know, Bitcoin has been traded for quite some time and and offers the ability for people to exchange value in a very efficient way. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that there there a lot of people think that there's real potential in Bitcoin. Um, as I said in my dissent, I'm not trying to make a judgment one way or the other on Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency. I'm just trying to give investors an opportunity to participate in this market. So, uh, Commissioner, I was interested by a study that came out by Coinmetrics this week that showed that up to two-thirds of the transaction activity registered on the Bitcoin network has no economic value, uh, with volumes being more influenced by reshuffling balances between accounts and outright scams. So how did the Winklevoss brothers propose to offset that with their ETF that would give sort of more confidence to the institutional investors? Well, the way this product was set up is it was pegged to the price on on one exchange uh, to the auction, the closing auction at the end of the day, and so that was that was how they chose to do it. There are other there are other approaches that one could take, and others have come in with different potential um, potential suggestions of how to do that. But again, I mean, as you get more institutions involved, the markets are going to become more regular, regularized. And 
you know, as to whether or not there's economic value in particular trading, I think we need to be careful in making those kind of, kinds of judgments. Um, in our equity markets, too, there are people who are involved in the markets for all different reasons. We have people who are who are planning to buy and hold for long term. We have people who are holding for much shorter for much shorter time frames, and we have people who are um, providing liquidity and who are trading in and out quite rapidly. And, and all of those different people have a different function in the market. Um, but but I don't think we need to make judgments about um, whether their their activity has value or not. Commissioner, do you think that there's a regulatory bias against Bitcoin right now and cryptocurrencies because there are people questioning whether they have inherent value and whether they are a bubble that have uh, sort of nothing behind them? Well, I think there are people who are questioning the value of Bitcoin. Um, and I think that as regulators, our role is not to judge investments, what the what the value of an investment is. It's to give people an opportunity to make those judgments themselves. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of very, very smart people who are very engaged in the crypto space and have... Um, have real ideas about how it could transform our lives. And I think we need to give those people an opportunity to um, work work with with what they have and to, to see what they can make of it. And, and I'd rather that we as regulators make sure that disclosure is good, which is, which is certainly a key part of our responsibility, um, but then allow investors to make their own choices. Commissioner, do you expect that your fellow commissioners will change their mind and could approve a Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency ETF uh, in the near future? Well, I do think it's possible. I mean, things in this space are changing fast, and and, um, some of the concerns that have been laid out by the commission are ones that you know, every day people are working on developing solutions and and addressing those concerns. So I think if we work with people in this space, um, we may be able to get more comfortable about things that that have uh, that have raised concerns for my colleagues. So I can't speak for them. You know, I can say from my perspective, I think we could have gone forward with this with this particular um, ETP, and I think that uh, doing so would have been would have been the right thing to do for investors. What do you think should happen in order to mitigate the agency's concerns over fraudulent and manipulative acts or practices that could be perpetrated using cryptocurrencies? Well, I think that in many underlying, you know, in in many, many assets underlying products that trade on our exchanges, there are concerns about manipulation. And so, um, yeah, but what could specifically be done in order to mitigate this having to do with cryptocurrencies? Because this is an unregulated offshore market. Well, there there are onshore markets and offshore markets. So you're you're right; it's a global marketplace, uh, and and there are players involved in this space who are very interested in making sure that there's no manipulation. And so there is quite a bit of self-regulation going on right now to address manipulation or, or charges of manipulation. And I think that's valuable. Um, and I think if we were to bring in the possibility of more institutionalization in the market, I think there would be even more watching for manipulation that would be going on by people who definitely have skin in the game. So, yes, there there is manipulation in in. in there is the potential for manipulation in lots of markets, and and we uh, we can see that that 
people involved in those markets take steps to address that. And and so obviously the exchange that would be offering this product has a real interest in making sure that it's offering a product that isn't being manipulated. And if it sees problems in the underlying, it can step in and stop trading. We've got to leave it there. But I want to thank you very much for your time and your comments. Hester Peirce, Securities and Exchange Commissioner, speaking about the rejection of the Winklevoss Twins uh, crypto ETF. Another company that has been in the news is NXP Semiconductor. Why? Because uh, Qualcomm was looking to acquire the company, but uh, that deal has uh, gone by the wayside. And here to tell us a little bit more about it is uh, Rick Klemmer, uh, president and the chief executive of NXP Semiconductors. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Maybe just explain why do you believe the deal didn't get done? Well, you know, it's hard for us to understand completely. We don't think there was any real regulatory issue that prevented the transaction from being approved in China. It was approved by 20-something other countries around the world. So it really wasn't a true regulatory issue. So it was probably a political issue. But, you know, uh, at this point in time, it's all about how we move forward and how we can get back to driving the growth that's uh, the best for our company and our shareholders. When you talk about moving forward, I have to wonder, did you get about 10 calls from other uh, potential acquirers right after that saying, hey, want to meet for coffee? (laughs) We haven't. And, you know, we don't plan on doing that. I mean, with the issue being the regulatory approval process, I don't know why it would be any different with anyone else. So, you know, we have a bright future when you look at where we are. We're the leading semiconductor supplier into the automotive market, very focused on autonomous driving, which really in the next few years, or actually probably next 10 years, is about making driving safer, not really automatic driving. And so we're focused on that. We're focused on facilitating the Internet of Things, which, you know, is going to have 75 billion connected devices by 2025, three times what it is today. And our technology really is in a position where it can take advantage of that and really provide some useful solutions for everyone. Now, just to note, you have a career that goes all the way back to the world of Texas Instruments, correct? I do. Okay. Uh, The reason I bring that up is because NXP Semiconductor, Philips, I mean, that's really, can you look forward and tell us what do you think the chip company of the future is really going to look like? Well, you know, we're trying to be sure that we're that. No, I, I, I get <laughs> so, that, but it's come through a lot of acquisitions and combinations. Has. and So we did a merger of equals about three years ago with Freescale, Freescale. which was the Motorola uh, semiconductor company. And, and that's proved to be very successful for us in the automotive space where we can bring the combination of both technologies together to be able to make a difference for our customers in the car industry. And so I think that those opportunities are really key, but it's about focusing on the future and, you know, we are in a unique position where we can provide the processing and the security because with all the hacking and risk of, of hacking, uh, being able to provide security in the connected world is a critical uh, value. What did it do to morale to have this deal after so much hype and so much drama 
fall apart? You know, it was really interesting. Initially, our organization was very excited about the combination with Qualcomm. When the confusion came in when Broadcom made the hostile bid for Qualcomm late last year, it really created a a damper on the uh, environment because uh, no one was looking forward to being in a position to, to be there. But, you know, we've gotten through that fatigue now. The organization is re-energized. Uh, we, we had an all-hands meeting after, the morning after it was announced, and everyone was quite excited about the future and just having certainty and clarity about where we're going. Just quickly, when a client or a customer goes to a store and pays using their mobile phone, like Apple Pay or Google Pay, or whatever, are they using an NXP product? Most likely they are. Uh, we have roughly 80, 85% market share in the mobile wallet. We invented NFC, some near you know, field communications. Yes, absolutely, which facilitates the mobile wallet. And so we're designed in, in most of those applications to be able to do that. We see that expanding, especially in Asia, where it's becoming uh, much more useful, used for transit and other applications. Uh, in India, they're actually where people don't have a bank account are now using their phone uh, basically as their bank account to facilitate transactions, to be able to store money, save money. So we're seeing a a real boom in usage in India uh, for the population that really doesn't even have a bank account today. So, uh, you know, Apple, talking about your smartphone uh, use and and the uh, smart pay, Apple has talked about possibly creating more of its own chips uh, and trying to create more of its own infrastructure. How concerned are you about that? Well, you know, Apple has uh, certainly got a bright future, and they've clearly moved towards where they're creating an, uh, a significant amount of their own technology. I think we're uniquely positioned with some key technology that they probably don't want to invest in to be able to drive based on the broad usage from a broad customer base where they wouldn't be able to serve. So I think uh, based on our experience, we think we have a good relationship with all of our uh, you know, mobile handset customers, and I uh, think we can continue to make good progress there. Biometric passports. I love the details of this stuff. So, I mean, that's you as well, right? Biometric chips. We we do the chip that's used in the electronic passport that helps facilitate, you know, processing information. So we do that in, I think, uh, 96 countries around the world. What do you think is going to be the biggest smart market that is not smart right now? In other words, where are chips going to be? in the future that where they aren't today you know it's going to be ever place you know as you start thinking about 75 billion you know it's huge and so like your thermostat all thermostats are going to be connected security your security in your home or office or industries all going to be connected so you can see what's going on wherever you are uh, around the during your work day or around travel or whatever so have regulators uh, been working closely with you as they start to get concerned about surveillance and safety and all that we we work with a number of uh, governments relative to how to provide that best security but you know with the new implementation of the you know the new acts in europe we have to be very careful about that information and certainly we're working with them to be able to protect it but not ensure that it's not abused all right well uh, i guess that uh, the future of nxp semiconductor as you see it right now independent absolutely we look forward to uh, continuing to drive a bright future. And is the M&A wave in the semiconductor space dead? You know, I don't know that it's dead. It's clearly going to go through a, a very thoughtful process. If this pro- transaction didn't get approved in China, where it was approved by the 20-something countries around the world, I think people are going to have to really think about you know, how much risk they want to take. 21 months is a long time to 
put your organization into a disruptive nature. So I think there will have to be a reflection associated with that. Did you feel any of the effects of the ban on purchasing products from China's ZTE Corporation? Purchase shipping product into yeah, to ZTE. Them. Yes, uh, we ZTE is a good customer of ours, and just last quarter we announced thirty-one million dollar impact for the fact that the U.S. had had uh, uh, prevented that from taking place. So I think they're a good customer. I think you know it's important that you know the uh, the appropriate steps are taken to provide the security uh, about information, but with the proper oversight, it seems like it's only appropriate for the company to be able to to um, be competitive. There are no U.S. Uh, companies that are still in that market that ZTE serves. So it's not certainly not like it's uh, anti-competitive for any U.S. company. And they probably purchase around three and a half or four billion dollars a year of semiconductor components. And my guess is 75 to 80 percent of that is from U.S. companies or U.S. manufactured like our product is. So, uh, you know, I think it's a big decision. And, you know, I, I applaud what's been done recently where they're putting them in a little bit different fashion with appropriate oversight to protect U.S. national security, but at, yet, at, less, at least letting them continue to operate as an independent company. Rick Clemmer, thank you so much for being with us. Really a pleasure to speak with you. You're, you're such a celebrity and, and sort of star of this soap opera we've been talking about for so long, uh, the potential tie-up of Qualcomm and NXP. Rick Clemmer is president and chief executive of NXP Semiconductors, NXP Semiconductors to remain independent for the foreseeable future. You know, talk about another curveball. Uh, investors in Twitter got a nice uh, curveball, and they whiffed it uh, down 19% right now. And here to tell us a little bit about Twitter's results and the changing nature of social media is Jim Anderson. He is the chief executive of Social Flow. Uh, they are uh, a uh, company that sort of measures and monitors uh, flows of information on social media. And in full disclosure, Social Flow is a platform used by Bloomberg for social media purposes. Jim Anderson, thanks very much for being here. Tell us, did I describe what you do at all accurately? You did. Okay. We're the platform most of the big media companies use to get their content out to Twitter, Facebook, and other social platforms. We do measure, and sort of, if you think about stock market analysts, we're not an analyst of the stocks. We're an analyst Correct. of consumer attention. Right, and that's important because as a publisher, you want to know whether real people are really looking at your content. That's exactly right. That's the entire game. If you can't get real people to pay attention to what you're doing, why are you doing it? Okay. Is Twitter getting more real people to do what they're supposed to do on the Twitter platform? The irony is yes. I mean, you wouldn't know it from their stock price. And I think the takeaway and Facebook in the same category, when you're a tech growth stock and you're not growing as much as the market expected you to grow, you're going to be punished. But the reality is there are just as many, if not more, real people using Facebook and Twitter today than there were six months ago, three months ago, yesterday. I mean, they're still growing. They're just not growing as fast uh, as they were and as the market expects. And Twitter's results are sort of complicated a little bit by this whole bot problem. And they're trying to clean up their ecosystem when I think they deserve amazing credit for trying to do that. But the numbers, you know, the total accounts and whether they report them and whether they were included in the numbers, you see a lot of you know sort of questions about how you count these things. Yeah. 
Well, Jim, you know, it's interesting that you say that there are more real users that are paying attention and, and signing up for Twitter and Facebook. Roger McNamee, one of the original investors in Facebook and uh, currently uh, head of Elevation Partners, was on Bloomberg Television yesterday, and he said that he thinks that Facebook in particular is running out of potential users in its more profitable markets. Do you agree? Yes. I mean, Facebook's over 2 billion people and there's 7.5 billion people on the planet. You know that a, a significant number of them aren't going to be candidates for, for Facebook for all kinds of reasons. So I think that's absolutely uh, been on their horizon for a long time. It's an open question. How far can they grow? And of course, you have to wrap up Instagram in there, which is owned by Facebook. You have to wrap up WhatsApp. So again, you get into these counting questions, but without a doubt, that, that point, I think, has to be front and center. How big can you possibly grow? Having said that, if you are an advertiser, what is the alternative? Is it Amazon? Well, increasingly so. I mean, I, I think it's interesting. You know, we talk about the FANG stocks, right? Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google. And now you see the analysts starting to decouple Amazon. Amazon didn't hit his revenue target either. And there are stocks up 4%. But their profitability- You're trying to make sense of Wall Street, which- I, I know. It's, it's kind of crazy. For a long time. Well, except for the fact that Amazon has demonstrated the ability to layer on higher margin services on top of a relatively low margin, low profit you know, commerce business. And so Amazon- is closer to the point of purchase than anybody out there, even Google. I mean, look at how profitable Google is. It knows when you type in the search box, I want to you know, go on a, a vacation or whatever. They know you're shopping for a vacation. That's one of the reasons Google is able to make so much money off of advertising. Amazon is poised to become an advertising powerhouse. They have 50% of e-commerce revenue in the U.S. goes through Amazon. They know what I'm buying. And I, I say that in, in all candor. They know what probably what you're buying they as get, well. Once they get you in the store. Yeah. Yeah. But Jim, that raises a question for the profitability and usefulness of Facebook and uh, and Twitter as advertising behemoths because they don't have the direct channel to the actual retailers. I mean, could this be part of the issue that uh, from a consumer engagement standpoint, Twitter and Facebook just are not the best places to advertise. I don't know that I would say that. I, I I put Twitter and Facebook more in the category of Netflix, which may seem odd. I mean, they're they're completely different business models. You know, one's ad supported and free, and the other is is subscription and doesn't have ads. But they, they all three of those companies, Facebook, Twitter, and Netflix, are really trying to get as much of your consumer attention as possible. Essentially, your recreational entertainment information time. Amazon's really quite different. I, I don't know too many people who go to Amazon just to entertain themselves, right? I, I go to Amazon when I need to buy oh, something. Oh, shop have, therapy. I, wait a minute, I, you know. <laughs> Shopping is uh, it, it, shopping is an activity. Fair point. So okay, right? I guess I mean, uh, my, my male bias here. I, I don't go to, to no, shop. No, no, but I, I, I'm just saying. You know, you look at what people purchase and how they purchase it, and you think, did you need that? You know, you didn't need that, but <laughs> well, you were there but, and you started clicking around and pretty soon, well, you know, another brown box shows up. But then it raises a question: entertainment, right? What is the sort of uh, I guess the is and it, Amazon is it as has effective? Movies. Is it as effective to advertise on that type of platform versus one where people are actually focused on actually buying things? They're yeah. opening up their pocketbooks. Well, you're getting into now, and this is a really big deal in the world of advertising: is sort of upper funnel brand awareness versus lower funnel direct response. And historically, the, the simple way to think of this was Facebook was traditionally more upper funnel. You know, I just want you know, Volvo wants people to know that Volvo cars are great and safe and. and and you know, all the attributes they're trying to convey. 
Contrast that with sort of Google, more click to buy, right? I know that you're planning a trip uh, uh, to a, a, an exotic locale and I want to sell you a hotel room or, or, or airline tickets. And so all of advertising is tending to move towards more direct response. And so, again, Amazon is incredibly well poised to capitalize. And I think that's part of what we're seeing in the markets. Well, certainly uh, that is what the investors uh, believe. So you're uh, seemingly on target there because if you look at Amazon shares today, uh, they are up uh, one and a quarter percent. Twitter shares, not so much. Twitter shares uh, down a little bit more than 19%. Thanks very much for being uh, with us. Uh, Jim Anderson, Chief Executive, Social Flow. Alzheimer's is a crippling disease that affects millions of people. Uh, one company, Azi, uh, has created a drug that will slow the progression of the earliest stages of the devastating condition, and a new study showed that it did so by 30%. The response, however, in the company's shares was a steep decline. Joining us now is Ivan Chung, chairman and chief executive of Azi, which is based in Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Ivan, thank you so much for joining us. Were you surprised by the market's reaction, given that this sounds like a pretty positive result? Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm not in a position to comment on the uh, short-term movements in the market, but um, as we presented at the Scientific Congress, this is the first large trial that if you could remove enough, a lot of the toxic amyloid plaque in the brain, it could slow down Alzheimer's disease. Mr. Chung, explain to our listeners the way in which cognitive ability was measured in the study whose results were released at that Alzheimer's Association conference in Chicago? Thank you for the question. We use an endpoint called ADCOMS, which is a composite of the key elements from three well-validated traditional measures. These three well-validated traditional measures have been used for many years, primarily to detect improvement in later stages of Alzheimer's disease, such as what ASI developed almost 20 years ago, Aricept. Now, we are testing band 2401 in earlier stages of Alzheimer's disease, because as you can imagine, these earlier stages of Alzheimer's disease patients, they're still functional, most of them are still at home, so we have to detect the initial milder changes so that we can delay the progression of uh, these uh, of, of this disease and that's why we uh, developed the adcoms which have the key elements that are more sensitive to the earlier uh, onset of these milder uh, cognitive impairments um, so I'm wondering, Ivan, just given the fact that there was uh, definitely some proof in this study that there was a slowdown in the progression, but perhaps not as much as people were expecting, do you still see uh, an accelerated approval as a possible path or a viable path uh, to pursue for this drug? I think uh, in the scientific community, there are different numbers being thrown out for example, 20% improvement would be clinically meaningful. 
In our study, we specifically define 25% improvement will be clinically meaningful. As you saw uh, in the uh, presentation earlier this week, we have shown a 30% uh, uh, improvement in delaying the decline and progression of Alzheimer's disease we definitely believe is clinically meaningful. And by two other measures, which are the more traditional measures. One, we saw 47% decline, 47% uh, less decline, and the other measure, 26% less decline. So we are confident about the robustness and the clinical meaningfulness of this data set. With regard to the health authority and the FDA, uh, let us do the work. Uh, we'll meet with them. Uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll have a productive conversation to understand the best path forward for PAN2401. Now, just to give a little more detail, there were there was a high-dose arm to the study, right? Yes, correct. Tell people, what is a high-dose arm? The high-dose arm is taking 10 milligram per kg twice a month. That's the high-dose arm. And in this study, the high-dose arm is the one that is the best dose that showed statistically significant and mean, uh, clinically meaningful results as what I described earlier. Okay. The reason I raised that issue is that European regulators have raised mm -hmm. some concerns mm -hmm. about some of the issues related to that high-dose arm. They were mm -hmm. worried about mm -hmm. the threat of brain swelling, right? That was uh, back in 2015 when the trial was at the initial stage. At that time, none of us in the field knew too much about this phenomenon called Area E, and that's why the uh, European authority took a more uh, conservative approach. Now, the European authority does not have that concern anymore. Together with our partner Biogen, we have two other phase three uh, late-stage clinical development programs for two other compounds. We are in the European site, and we have no such issues. That was uh, um, uh, a matter a few years back when the field didn't know much about how to take care of this issue, and now we don't have that issue anymore. All right. Uh, I want to thank you very much for helping us understand this a bit. Uh, Ivan Chung is the chairman and the chief executive of Azai. Uh, the parent company uh, is Azai Company based in Tokyo, and he's talking about the release of new information having to do with their study of uh, an Alzheimer's uh, drug that was released at the uh, Chicago Alzheimer's meeting on Wednesday. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.